Um, today's subject, the launch of the Equip for the Future, for the Future report. Um, when Charlie and I started Footprint about sort of 10 years ago or so, we, we had a conversation with a guy who we were saying to him, you know, are you, are you putting, this, this chap was a chap who fits kitchens uh, commercially. And we said, are you, are, you, um, are you putting this energy stuff in? And he said, well, yes, there is stuff here. But what happens is that the client says, yeah, we want all the new energy stuff, um, energy saving kit. We know what's coming through the window and this, that, and the other. But when actually they come to receiving the bill, that was the first thing that went. And in the end, he said he just basically gave up um, because it was putting a, a, a large percentage onto the cost of the kitchen and the clients just weren't buying it. Now, a couple of years later, um, some of you may know we have a thing called Footprint Awards and there are a number of categories there. Uh, one of those categories is, is um, sustainable equipment. Um, and normally, you know, you don't get a couple. There was one stage about, I mean, I suppose it was probably about eight years ago now, when suddenly we got a great big flux of entries for um, the equipment one from lots of different companies. Everybody had been beavering away and had produced their own, uh, their own equipment. Um, today we're going to hopefully find out uh, a little bit about where we are with the status quo. There is a, a fabulous report being produced um, authored by our very own Amy Fetzer, who is going to be presenting it to you fairly shortly. Um, but first, I would like to introduce you to uh, Simon Frost, who is the uh, Director of um, Sales and uh, Chain Accounts for our supporters in this one, Hoshizaki. Simon. Thank you very much. I'll just put my specs on, otherwise I won't be able to see a thing. Okay. Um, uh, firstly, I would like to uh, welcome you all to the Equip for the Future report preview. Thank you for coming. Um, ever since uh, Hojizaki began back in 1947, innovation in commercial ice making has always been the goal. And now, 70 years on, we are proud to be the global leader for quality uh, sustainable refrigeration and ice production solutions. In a world that has become increasingly perceptive to the environmental issues, it is now important, more important than ever that the food service industry plays its part in becoming greener. The Equip for the Future report serves to detail this need by exploring how companies can facilitate a greater uptake of energy efficient catering products that will not only help the environment, but will also save companies money uh, through a marked reduction in their energy consumption. It, but it's not just the physical product that businesses should be considering in the searches for sustainability, but also some of the surrounding factors. Hojizaki EMEA, our European head office, has implemented an eco-plan for the entire business. In following the plan, it has provided a roadmap for the UK to ensure we operate in a sustainable way. For example, our UK manufacturing and production facility in Telford has not only achieved ISO 14001, but also operates a Japanese-inspired just-in-time philosophy, which ensures an efficient, environmentally friendly manufacturing process. Our machinery, such as folders and cutters, are new models 
using the most up-to-date technologies which consume much less energy during operation. For the equipment we produce, Hoshizaki has also achieved the goal of using 100% recyclable packaging and our equipment deliveries are undertaken by the most energy efficient logistical partners. <coughs> this drive for efficiency and sustainability across the Hoshizaki business is driven from the top down and as such every element of the company has adopted this mindset so the sustainability improvements can be driven right the way through. At Hoshizaki we are always looking at new ways to improve and since the releasing of the first Graham Green paper back in 2008 we have improved our research behaviours and approaches to sustainability. The Equip for the Future report is a perfect example of this ambition to improve as it takes ideas established in our Graham Green paper that one step further by detailing the trends, reasons and challenges that businesses face in the terms of improving sustainability. In order for Hojizaki to deliver a meaningful research report with substantiated claims, not just from manufacturers, but from also from industry associations, environmental bodies, and above all, operators across the sector, we needed to align ourselves with a highly respected partner. Therefore, we are delighted to have been working closely with the team at Footprint Intelligence, who have used many years of experience and an impressive contact list to be able to produce the report that we are going to hear about this afternoon. I'd now like to pass you over to Amy Feltzer, Footprint Intelligence's Head of Research, who will present some of the key findings from the report. Thank you. Hello. It's uh, really lovely to be with you all today um, to talk to you about... Oh. Uh, Equip for the Future report. Um, this has been a really interesting journey um, to, to work on this report. And so what I'm going to do, um, and, and so many people in the room have spoken to me during the research process and so many more who aren't here. And without that you know, valuable insight, we wouldn't be able to produce uh, this work and get that insight from the coalface. So thank you all for coming today, but also thank you for all the hours behind the scenes of, of uh, talking to me, answering questions, doing surveys, all of this, talking to the team. It is really appreciated. Um, so I'm going to talk you through um, uh, what we found out, because we basically were looking at the, uh, the, the barriers and the actions that could be taken to overcome those barriers to increase the uptake of more energy efficient and sustainable equipment in food service. Um, now I know we've got, um, and we basically what we did is when we did all this research, we tried to make it quite actionable, and we found uh, we sort of so we created little action plans for manufacturers and vendors, um, and operators, and then there's a, a point for government and industry as a whole. So I know that some of it's not going to necessarily apply to you if you're not an operator or you're not a manufacturer, but hopefully by going through it all, we can all understand what the industry needs to do together to try and change the status quo at the moment, which isn't working quite as we'd all like. Um, and also by seeing, okay, this is the barrier, this is what operators need to do, you know, perhaps manufacturers can sit there and then help you know, facilitate those changes that operators need to make, operators can facilitate the changes that manufacturers need to make. We can all understand what we all need to do collectively to change the situation and, um, and increase you know, the uptake of energy efficient equipment in uh, food service. Okay, so, 
basically, there's uh, some great stats out there so that tell us that 60% of energy is used in the kitchen. Now, um, this the Carbon Trust calculates this can be up to 43p per meal. Now, obviously, um, if you if you look at these costs, these are quite significant. And um, there's some more research that, say, that indicates that 250 billion pounds worth of potential savings could be made just by um, the UK catering industry changing their equipment, upgrading their equipment, using their equipment more effect effectively and efficiently and changing their menus. So why aren't people doing it? This seems sort of insane. We're always looking for ways to make more with less you know there's always reasons to sort of trim budgets and, and work harder so these seems like a really obvious place to get those savings and i mean most many of you will see in the um, footprint report that came out yesterday on how this really long hot summer is going to have a massive impact on food prices so again there's going to be more squeezes to come there's brexit looming so we're always looking you know food stuff is always looking for ways to um to to save money so this why aren't people doing this? It just seems a bit crazy. There's also the, um, you know, the pressures, the increased public concern and business concern um, regarding um, you know, business responsibility, public responsibility. There's the Paris Accord in increasingly beginning to make itself known in more legislation and, and, and business practices that people really want um, you know, energy efficiency and carbon to be tackled. So there's all these pressures, but, um, but not enough... Uh, attention baby being focused on how catering equipment in the kitchen can actually be part of this um, solution this way to save money be more efficient reduce carbon help meet public and um, policy commitments so why don't we do it so we spoke to um over 30 uh, food service insiders uh, to discuss and explore uh, what were the barriers and what was going on to, to find out what was preventing this investment when it seems so obvious and logical. Uh, so what we found was, despite this increase in sustainability activity in other spheres, and in fact, you know, we are just about to produce our trends report and it's really heartening how food service has really embraced sustainability and there has been a big sea change in, in the way the, um, the industry does approach sustainability and it is much more business as usual. But we have, you know, but there seems to be this, this finding that the kitchen equipment is still sort of not quite on everyone's radar. So, um, so we wanted to speak to everybody and find out what, what were um, the barriers and how people felt they could be, could be overcome. Now, what's a bit frustrating about this report is we spoke to all these people, we did a survey, we wanted some really juicy stats to say, you know, this many percent of people say this, this many people say that. But what was really interesting is, and this is the beauty of when you do in-depth qualitative research is rather than just sending out a survey where people are forced to make binary answers of this percentage or that percentage, is nobody wanted to give us clear answers. Everyone said, well, this is why this is not, you know, everyone said, yes, the problem is price. Yes, the problem is lack of data on whole life costings. Yes, the problem is comparable, lack of comparable energy data. But when we said, well, which one? Which one's the most important? Oh, well, you know, nobody wanted to commit to one thing. Everyone agreed that all of these things were really important. And this was what was really interesting about this research is that everything was very nuanced. The, these, um, these issues are not binary solutions. Um, so we, but everybody that we spoke to agreed that these three components were the main barriers to the adoption of energy efficient catering equipment. So um, we wanted to go through then and um, 
and find out how they could be overcome. Um, so from our research, people said that price was the main consideration in about half of equipment purchases. But again, people always wanted to qualify this with, yes, it's, you know, it is a main consideration, but functionality, but reliability, but sustainability. Um, they, everyone agreed unanimously that sustainability was important to their customers. And they all agreed that the sustainability credentials of their suppliers was also important. So again, we have this wonderful sort of situation where everyone thinks sustainability is really important. But so are these other factors. So we needed to find out how we could make sure that sustainability comes um, more to the fore. So as I mentioned before, we've got a manufacturer action plan, manufacturer vendor action plan, an operator action plan and a government and industry action plan. So now I'm going to take you through those three different action plans to talk to you about um, what we found. By the way, I didn't say at the beginning, but you know, if you have any questions, just shout. Um, if I'm talking too fast, just say slow down. I get a bit excited. Um, and also there is a, a hashtag, so I put it on the slide. So if anyone does want to tweet, do we know the, um, yeah, the password is September. so yeah, if you want to get online, the password September. So um, the first one, so the manufacturer and vendor action plan. Now, this is about different eight different points that we found. And of course, some of these are slightly overlapping. But the, one of the really key um, sort of action points for manufacturers is this to take more of a focus on uh, whole life costing. So we had this uh, quote from Pete Redman, who's at Bartlett Mitchell, saying, the only thing that prevents me buying more energy efficient, efficient equipment is cost. But as uh, many of you will know, that when you look at the life cycle cost of more energy efficient equipment, which tends to be more reliable, higher spec as well, usually that life cycle cost is actually lower. Um, so we had, um, you know, there was a there's a carbon trust study that found that for putting in an eleven hundred pound investment, that would save seven hundred pounds per year. So within about uh, 16 months you would get that initial inv that investment back by changing um, and of course there's a carbon uh, co2 uh, saving of about 3.4 tons there too so again it's not just the money that we're saving here we're working towards these global targets we're working towards keeping our planet a little bit less warm so um so the uh i spoke to keith warren who's going to speak later uh, he's going to be on our panel from CRSP and he was saying you know how this this is you know seen throughout the industry it's very well established and you know, he said purchase price is often the start of the discussion and basically sustainability and energy saving features can then be lost as you get this focus on keeping the capex low um, but lifetime costs do outweigh the purchase costs um, so the people the operators that we spoke to who were successfully managing to prioritize sustainable more sustainable, more energy efficient equipment, basically were the ones who'd managed to use whole life costings in their models. So this is this is really, really important. And actually, um, you know, within the industry, you know, everyone said when when you use lifetime costs and whole life costs, it's an absolute game changer because it completely changes the focus from that capex to looking at what happens you know, what energy use, all of this stuff. So, um, and all the remedial and, and planned maintenance as well. So it it's, sounds really obvious, but the reality of it is this isn't happening. So, you know, this is why we need to say this isn't happening. We need to stop it. You know, so, and what manufacturers can do is make it, you know, by produce, by, by being able to provide this whole life costing information, they can change that. Um, paybacks is another one 
that came out quite strongly in the research. And, and again, we wanted to have a really juicy stat, you know, what was the time period, what was the percentage, what were people prepared to pay? But again, what we found is it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a formula. So what we found is that premiums for efficiency and sustainability features were acceptable when the payback was achieved before the life cycle was two thirds complete and it was still within warranty. And also the life costings information had to be available so that people could really understand and demonstrate that payback. So again, this is something that manufacturers can use when they're setting their price points, when they're looking at how they're marketing and selling to understand that you know this is the type of thing that's in you know, operators and, and buyers' heads. So to kind of make sure that they're making sure that that equipment fits within that remit. Um, the next thing was a focus on fan functionality. Again, a third of the interviewees said that functionality was a primary purchasing factor. And then some people's, for example, Nick Howe, who was from Court Catering Equipment, I mean, he felt, you know, from his experience, you know, that 80% of um, the purchasing that he was involved in was based on functionality and 20 on price. So it just shows how important this is as a criteria. Now, of course, when the problem is, is a sustainability elements, you know, making something more energy efficient can affect the size, can make it thicker, make it bigger, therefore it doesn't fit in the space. There's lots of reasons why sometimes functionality is impacted by energy efficiency or something else. But again, to have this really clearly demonstrated helps to kind of clear that focus for manufacturers to make sure what are the functionalities of the you know, requirements of those main clients and how can we ensure that the items with the best sustainability features aren't being compromised, you know, and to really use that in your R&D and focus on how we can get that functionality without um, compromising any on anything on sustainability. Um, you know, this lovely quote from Henry Burgess on, you know, he was saying as a buyer, his responsibility is to provide good quality tools so the kitchen team can focus on providing great service. So, Again, it's very, it's very simple, but really, really key here that we get that functionality and sustainability interlinked. Um, reliability, again, again and again, when you speak to the operators, they all you know, uh, said it's the most important consideration because if it breaks down, obviously you lose all that food, you lose the ability to serve. You know, the costs of a, a, an unreliable pit of kit um, can be massive. And, um, and in fact, there was a, a, a lovely quote from somebody who was explaining that they had you know actually done the the costings and they could see you know these bits of kit were breaking down all the time and even and when they you know because they were measuring all the data they could see that and they could then you know actually make the case within their organization which was very budget conscious that actually reliability and functionality and, sustain and sustainability you know could be justified because um because it you know it was costing them more overall um, and actually, when I spoke to Simon Frost, who you heard from a moment ago, you know, he was saying how because sustainability features are usually in the, the quality models, you know, it becomes part of that selling package and how, how he, uh, their clients, Hojisaki's clients had really, you know, this tied in with, you know, putting sustainability and reliability and energy efficiency at the heart of designs. And that really resonates with clients and makes, you know, builds that trust and that loyalty and, and, and that um that good relationship. Um, the next one is linking um, to operators' sustainability strategies. Now, as, as I've touched on already, there's all these big uh, 
larger shifts and paradigm shifts going on within the business community, within governmental policy changes. And so, you know, so many people nowadays have very clearly defined sustainability strategies. And within that, they have carbon and energy reduction targets. So if you can demonstrate and make it really easy and obvious for if manufacturers and vendors can make, demonstrate how their more sustainable products can help meet those very specific targets of their clients, that is a really powerful um, way to help drive you know that interest and that commitment to investing in, in energy efficiency because it really shows that added value and um and it shows how they can help them achieve their carbon targets and again that that sounds really obvious but it doesn't always happen and just taking that extra time to, to tie in with a particular client sustainability strategy can be you know a really powerful way to get them to buy in um and, uh, and the other thing that's interesting as well is there is this paradigm shift between for sustainability to be an everyday part of business. And as one of the, there's a really senior procurement manager who we spoke to who said, you know, it's now expected as routine. So just being able to say you've got these good credentials is, you know, everyone expects that now, it's, it's standard. But being able to take that extra leap and really link it to their sustainability strategy is going to help you really get that, um, get that buy-in. Um, the other thing which again is that, that everyone kind of had really noticed how the people the operators with the strong sustainability strategies were much more likely to prioritize energy efficiency but with this whole um pressure mounting within the the food service community and the business community the good thing is is all those laggards who have been less um forthcoming so far you know they are all changing too um so it's a really good selling point uh, the next point is, uh, which was one of the barriers, I mean, this was a, a really big barrier, which I mentioned as well when we talk about operators, but is this idea of bringing stakeholders together. Um, it's really, really time consuming for manufacturers and vendors to build those relationships with their um, their clients. But it's absolutely crucial because once you start building that trust, the whole purchasing becomes more consultative and the um, the client realises that obviously what's being sold is actually what's going to help meet the needs, do that functionality, do that reliability, but these additional sustainability benefits, you know, they, they trust that they are being sold them in the right way, you know, that's going to meet their needs on all the other points as well. Um, Simon said this uh, great thing to me about the key point of a salesperson is getting the message across and speaking to the right people to build a case. Um, and, and it's really, really important to, to do that with all, all the different people within the organisation because obviously specifiers really care. You know, often it's, they, they get it, but often it's not them who, who needs to have the full case explained. So this is where uh, really bringing all those stakeholders together is very important. Um, again, the nice thing is, is that operators are very open to this. Pete Redmond said, you know, I want to see equipment manufacturers make a bigger deal about their sustainable products. I want more publicity and greater showcasing. There was a sense um, from within the operator, you know, the, the community that actually they wanted to hear about this stuff. They wanted to be told. They wanted to to know how it could help them in their in their um, in their working environments. Um, and in fact, they also noticed how they were always being sold things about LED lights, about washrooms, and you know, water efficiency in in other parts of um, an outlet but the kitchen they all felt they weren't really sold they were getting people contacting them all the time with all these different innovations for 
other parts of a site but the kitchen they felt rightly or wrongly was not was sort of being much more ignored and much more off the radar um so they just wanted a bit more hype and publicity about the innovations that are going on for catering equipment um and space nk so i spoke we spoke to uh Ken Tag and, and, and Space Group, and he said, Space NK, and Space Group, and he was saying um, that they had helped to retain some of their clients for over 20 years because they'd really worked at building this consultative relationship because their clients knew, you know, they could trust them to tell them this is the right bit of kit for your particular needs. So therefore, when they told them about things that had the energy efficient um, uh, criteria and really, you know, would help them save money with the whole life costing, they trusted them that that was the right thing. Um, so sustainability does really help with all these hooks. Uh, tied into this, is, of course, is targeting the budget holder. Um, I had some great stories about people saying, I think it might have been from one of you two, about how you've gone through this whole system of winning everyone over and winning over and winning everyone over, and then you get to the budget holder and they're like, nope, it's not within the budget. So, of course, getting to the person who holds the budget is, you know, really, really key. Um, because if, we, if, if the buy-in can come from them, then that obviously means that everybody else who's been persuaded will, will be able to, to um, okay the whole uh, purchase. But the interesting thing is, and this is where um, the whole life costings again come in, because clients typically ask for um, savings of about 10 and 20%. So if you can demonstrate those val that value by having the whole life costings information, right at the beginning, then that means that that budget holder who's got those purse strings will really make it, um, you know, really, that will help to change the whole dynamic um, and mean that things won't get stopped at the last minute when after all the work and effort that's gone into uh, to get everybody else on board. Um, this is the one that I think we're going to have a bit of a chat about on the panel later, but the really, um, from, from all the research, this is one of the things that's really key is about uh, manufacturers uh, and the industry agreeing common energy consumption and costing data. Now, obviously, we have the MEEPS, uh, and that's this now MEEPS for cooling, which is part of the EU Eco Design Directive. So it's brilliant that there's now the A grading um, across that. So it's really easy for customers purchasing uh, refrigeration cooling products. They can now compare them using the MEEPS, but it's not. Um, been expanded outside of that and um, all the specifiers and the buyers have said you know getting comparable uh, consumption data from manufacturers they said it was like pulling teeth I was quite tempted to get some kind of illustration here with some dentist pulling a tooth um, <laughs> to liven things up but uh, anyway um, so uh, so it really it's not something that's easy for the industry to do and it's not something that they would want to voluntarily go into but if they want to really challenge um the status quo of you know one of these barriers and overcome it this is this is a really key element of it because it really feeds into build this whole life costing data and be able to have comparable uh data so that the people who are doing all the work can have, have that demonstrated and reflected and easily um showcased um, but hopefully not manipulated. <laughs> we were talking about that earlier. So, um, so you know, they, they, many of the people I spoke to, so for example, I talked to uh, Julie Peach, who is the category uh, manager at Sodexo, and she was saying, you know, in the tender process, they create all these spreadsheets which compare all sorts of different options and prices, and 
but they don't have anything on that spreadsheet at the moment that's got the water and energy use because they can't get the data. So they're saying if they could, they'd put it on there and then they could incorporate that as one of the variables that they are comparing on and helping to inform their choice. But um, but they can't get it. So they really, they really, so they use sustainability. They're really, you know, it's a company that's really committed to sustainability. But at the moment, they just have to, it's more kind of a, of an external factor that's a bit of a, you know, sense that they use rather than being able to be one of the hard facts on those spreadsheets. And it would make a really big difference. You know, everybody we spoke to um, agreed. And and from the manufacturer's perspective, you know, we had things, uh, comments, for example, from uh, Simon saying, you know, having um, products on the energy technology list and getting A-class ratings has really helped the operators make clear and informed choices when it comes to purchasing the best and most sustainable refrigeration for their business. So, you know, from both sides, people have noticed the difference that these MEEPs have made. They they really want it for everything else. Um, so what the report is really calling for, and I'm not saying this is one of the hardest ones, but that they, the manufacturers of equipment that aren't covered by MEEPs, you've got to do it. Come on, come together and, you know, set your own standards and configurations and testing parameters. Um, so that's a, that's a really good one. Um, the other things that might help to drive this as well, there's other things sort of bubbling away in the background, but things like the building information modelling um, sort of software that's coming out. So you probably know much more about this than me, but my understanding is it, is it digitalises construction and puts a cost on every single item that you put in that building so that people can take things there in and out and sort of compare costs and functionality and energy use. But not only can you use it in the design of that building, but also once the building is up and running, you can see how changing various bits of equipment can change the energy usage and the cooling load and all sorts of things like this. So, you know, there's other things that are going to help drive this. Um, so, you know, there's a good argument that these manufacturers would be, you know, taking a step ahead and being ahead of the curve if they started to look at how to um, get their own configuration and testing parameters now rather than waiting for regulation in the future because I'm surely it will come but just it doesn't look very imminent at the moment. Um, the next one uh, from the next point for manufacturers that came out of the report was this um, focus on innovation instead of incremental gain. So um, what was really interesting is that the I mentioned earlier there was this real sense within the uh, food service kind of operation, op the operational side of food service, that there wasn't, you know, that much noise about all the innovations that are happening within the kitchen itself, which, as we've seen from the stats, is bonkers when most of the energy and a lot of the water is being used in the kitchen. But it just seems to be just a bit of a, a random blind spot. So, you know, pe the, the people we spoke to were saying, you know, I want them to ring me and tell me if they have a great bit of kit that helps the planet and does what I need to do and isn't too expensive. So there's this real perception, which, uh, you know, is uh, quite wrong, I think, in many senses, but that the kitchen equipment is really lagging behind all the other people who are getting very excited about lighting and, you know, urinals and all the great innovations that are happening in other spaces. So it's a big opportunity um, to, to really get that innovation and better communication of existing solutions. Um, the really interesting thing here is, you know, everybody was in massive agreement that the you know, innovation is going to totally transform um, the way kitchens, commercial kitchens operate. And, you know, we, we kind of sit there and you sort of 
there's the whole internet of things, you know, fridges that can read the barcodes and say when foods are going to approaching its sell by date or even reorder it when it's running out of certain items, um, you know, or that tell um, the maintenance cycle when they're going to break down. The operators loved all of these ideas. They're really keen for them. And they're going to change the way the kitchen's, the whole mythology of the kitchen is going to change, basically. But we're not kind of getting, there's not much noise. But what also is interesting is, so there's some things that are going to just change, you know, the function, the refrigeration function is going to stay the same. But there's also a whole raft of other amazing innovations within the kitchen equipment space. So there was a great um, example I was given about this new um, storage unit that can hold like, sort of uh, meat protein like burgers at a pasteurizing, really low pasteurizing temperature and it can hold them for about six weeks at this temperature which is obviously much lower than a normal refrigeration so it's much cheaper and more cost effective and then when you actually cook that burger it just needs a sort of a quick browning so again you know using less energy in the cooking and apparently there's a big knock-on for wastage because you only have to cook what you need at a certain time and there's a big saving in staff time so this one you know innovation that's going to you know, for those restaurants that use a lot of burgers, it can change the whole way that kitchen works. This great new piece of kit, which I'm sure, you know, involves a lot of initial outlay. But these sort of innovations are coming. So everyone wants to hear about them. So we need to get more of them happening and more of them out there and better knowledge. Um, so the next uh, little section is the operator action plan. Um, so the really big barrier for the operators is this idea of all the different silos. So there's a real tendency to work in silos and different departments are responsible for different budgets. And people don't communicate to ensure that all the costs and all the factors are incorporated into um, the decision making process because everyone's just essentially looking after their budget and they're the person, you know, they've got to keep the capex low because they're the buyer, you know, they're not talking to the to the um, the energy guys and they're not talking to the maintenance guys and they're not talking to, you know, anybody who's worrying about HR and the fact that everyone's quitting because the kitchen's so hot, you know, so nobody's sort of working together and the and the caterers who were doing really well at prioritizing sustainability in their equipment were the people who were getting really really good communication between the different different departments so it was just absolutely smashing down those silos and um, making sure all those different stakeholders within the business were involved in the purchasing briefs and developing you know everyone's with everyone's input and um, it, it, it just was really interesting because the businesses that you know told us we re you know we really know this is a problem we're beginning to change things and people who you know but some of the people who are saying yeah we've been trying you know it's frustrating because no one you know no one is listening to each other so this is really really key it's a big big problem and so this is what i mean about we're trying to give everybody the different action plans because for internally the operators need to be smashing through the silos and then the manufacturers can be facilitating that by trying to make sure they're speaking to all the stakeholders and you know everyone can be working together to get everybody looking at these um you know these purchases in a really holistic way to make sure that everything is working at maximum efficiency um so I'm just seeing if there's anything else I wanted to tell you. Oh, actually, another really good point for this is about um, one of the things that can also help is 
setting science-based targets because often companies as i said will have a sustainability target a sustainability department they'll have those targets so first of all those targets need to be set in a really scientific way because obviously there's no point in setting targets that don't actually get us to where we need to be in terms of managing and you know maintaining a, no more than a two degree temperature change but um but the thing is is if you can get those really clear targets set from the very top of the business and make sure that they're really good targets that, you know, as I said, do what they need, then that filters through across all these different silos and departments because suddenly everyone's working to this bigger bigger picture as well. They're not just, you know, having to think about their budget because suddenly they've got a bigger target that's come from the board that they need to be thinking about reducing their energy, um, you know, um, energy usage and, and their maintenance costs. And suddenly that becomes everybody's issue and, again, helps to facilitate... Um, everyone working together to not just look at that initial purchase price, price and outlay. Um, the next one is uh, about measuring, then managing. Now, this is one that you uh, may have heard before at a footprint forum. It's not uh, an uncommon theme, but it's really, really, really effective at helping with all sorts of sustainability elements. Because if you don't know what's happening, um, you you know you you can't change it. So. Um, Again, this idea of using, you can, if you measure and manage, you can identify the whole life costings and then build the business case for investment. So um, Dennis Bruin at the London Borough of Catering, um, you know, as I said before, he was, he was tracking everything. He was tracking the purchase costs, the energy costs, the remedial costs, the plant maintenance costs, because he was the guy in charge of everything. And he could see, you know, well, hang on, this brand is really not performing and then you could look into it and see yes that was a budget brand but overall that budget brand had cost them way more overall than actually just investing in a you know an energy efficient reliable brand in the first place because this whole um idea of you know this whole life cost 80 percent is in use costs so we've got to make sure that buyers are no longer incentivized by this low purchase price now there's a couple of really good tools out there that can help. Um, one is something that was developed by the Keg Consultancy, which is called Caterops. This is a cloud-based tool that um, you projects energy use and footprint, so you can, and energy use and carbon footprint. So you can put all your data in there and then really look and see, okay, well, if I use this bit of kit, I use that a bit, I swap this in and out, what are gonna be the impacts? The Carbon Trust also have a tool called the Costman Carbon Calculator. Now, the feedback is it does require quite a lot of time and energy to input everything into the calculator. But once it's done, it actually does really reward that investment by a lot of good detail to help people understand what's going on and really make those whole life costings. So it is important to do this measurement and management for, for operators. Um, the other thing, which is uh, taking a bit of a step back from the figures and from the actual energy use, is, this, is this the importance of focusing on the working environment. Because obviously... When things work well, they're invisible. You don't notice them. But actually, equipment has this massive, massive impact on the kitchen. It can be hot and it can be noisy and it can impact on people's health and well-being. And the quality, and that also has an impact if you want to take the really just business-focused approach. But on the on the health, on the quality and speed of service, um, people can be a bit glib about this, but it can be really, really exhausting um, for uh, management and kind of people working within the restaurant environment to recruit and train uh, new team members or to deal with absenteeism and um, not having enough staff on site. So this, 
you know, these these types of things have a really big impact. And you know, refrigeration can get a lot of heat. All these things, you know, if you get the the less um, energy efficient items, they have these other sort of wider impacts. And apparently, sort of, there's a if you switch from something like gas to induction, there can be up to ninety percent increases in efficiency, and it can really dramatically reduce the heat and ventilation requirements. And that also has this big knock on impact on um, energy use and noise, and that improves the environment both, you know, within the kitchen environment, but also for for neighbours and for planning. So again, there's all these really good ripple effects that when you you tackle this one sort of rather dry thing let's get more energy efficient equipment actually you can transform that working environment and there's um there's a stat out there from uh, the SRA I think that says it costs 15,000 it can cost up to 15,000 to replace an employee um, and they have developed this um, sickness absence calculator so again when operators are looking towards to put towards these business case for why it's worth that investment in more energy efficient equipment you know why what's the what's the value to this at that initial capex outlay you know we can use tools like this and, and, and um uh, examples like this to help really demonstrate this isn't just the energy consumption that's going to go down. Other really significant benefits here as well. I mean, you know, you imagine uh, there was a there was a good example that we were given um, by there was one kitchen that apparently was getting up to fifty three degrees. I mean, imagine working in that. I mean, absolutely horrific. And so they took out this gas range which cost about twelve hundred and replaced it with a, an induction range that cost about four and a half grand. But it dramatically improved the kitchen experience with noise massively reduced from the ventilation and the absentee and absenteeism and turnover totally reduced. You know, everyone was happier, working better, more efficient. You know, the whole thing just by changing <laughs> from a gas to induction. So, you know, you might think this can be a bit uh, dry, but there's really big impacts. And, you know, how much better and, you know, that well-being for those, those staff is also super important too. So it's really important to look after you know, the holistic elements and all the different impacts that there are. Um, the next one is uh, that operators really need to put this stuff in tenders. So they need to demand energy efficiency and other whole life costings in the tenders. And obviously, there's going to be legally appropriate language to do this. So, you know, get the legal teams to advise, make sure it's right. But that would make it so much easier to compare and contrast and also to prioritise it. And again, this will be another nudge to all the um, manufacturers who aren't yet able to uh, produce comparable uh, energy use and costing data or make them much more likely to, to work towards that and to come up with some more comparable um, systems, you know, uh, systems. And, um, you know, and everybody we spoke to, again, they were like an expansion. You know, here's one from Kate Gould who who uh, was from Keg, the Keg Consultancy, she said, you know, an expansion of energy labelling and whole life costing data would be immensely helpful. It would really help our clients to prioritise it. So if you have it in that tender, they can see it, they can know it, and they can compare it. Um, the other thing that came out was about keeping procurement flexible, because obviously the, there was a, um, a, a comment that somebody told us you know, they said, you know, sometimes they stick with their suppliers, come what may. So that supplier might not have the right equipment for that um, that particular operator. It might not have in their range the kind of kit that will actually be the most energy efficient and they have the best functionality and the best price and all of these things. But because they're a preferred supplier, you know, they're just uh, stuck to that box. Now, um, I'm sure when you've got a, a preferred supplier contract, you wouldn't like to hear um, us saying this. But the fact is, is that, you know, 
it is important to keep that for operators to keep that flexibility so they can always get the right products and the most um, sustainable products for them and obviously hopefully having a bit more flexibility within that tendering and procurement environment will help drive the manufacturers to continue to be um, you know competing with each other and keep them on their toes so although they might not like it hopefully it will help drive innovation um, the next one is, and this is especially important for contract caterers, is uh, this drawing these links between equipment and utility costs. Because especially in the contract catering environment, and for some, um, obviously, some other uh, operating environments where they don't own the building or they don't um, actually pay, you know, they're not actually involved in the um, utilities, there's a lot of value-added um, opportunity to really help them see the links between what is, um, you know, because the thing is with a lot of contract caterers is they say, you know, our clients are a bank or they're a pharmaceutical company. The kitchen's a complete oversight. They just, you know, they haven't even necessarily set aside a budget for any equipment at all, let alone thinking about how much it's going to cost to run that equipment or why they should actually spend more to get, you know, the whole life costing, you know, side of it and something that's going to be using a lot less energy and a lot cheaper to run and therefore cheaper overall. So, drawing these links for operators who are working in those types of environments when they aren't in the, the you know aren't um, actually the person paying the bills or maybe even making the purchase if they can draw help draw these links um, that can make a really really big difference so again for operators to invest in doing that um, in prioritizing it is is very important and uh, um, and uh, you know uh, Mike Hansen when I spoke to him from backstory um, Edwina Hughes from Sodexo you know loads of people said you know when we do it when we when we get them to change you know it's really easy to show them the cost savings and the business benefits the business case is actually it's there to be made but it just takes uh, takes the time and energy to um to make it um and as i said the specifiers are often behind it it's just whether um they're they're the person with the budget um the next one going back to staff is ensuring that staff are well trained and responsible for equipment because often there's that sort of irony in a kitchen. Sometimes the person who's being paid the least could be operating the most enormously expensive piece of equipment. So there will be, of course, people in that scenario who are massively invested and proud of the machines and the way they handle them. But there is also, we've had feedback that there are people, especially at the um, quick service restaurant end of the, of, of the scale, where, you know, that high churn means people just, you know, are quite heavy handed with machines. So... There's apparently up to 70% energy savings available for um, making behavioural changes, for, you know, looking after things, using them appropriately and doing that maintenance. Because if they are well maintained, then you're going to get the optimum efficiency. So, as I said, it's not all about um, facts and figures, but also just about making sure people know how to use them, how to look after them, you know, making sure that the gaskets are being kept clean so they don't go brittle, all this stuff, you know, just making sure that's part of the routine of the kitchen and that they don't get forgotten. Um, some of the operators said they'd had really good success at implementing um, behavioural changes by benchmarking different sites against each, against each other. So that way you could really pinpoint those low achieving sites and parachute in some extra support and help. But, you know, they could use a bit of a carrot and stick approach and know that actually... If you don't buck up your ideas, we've got a bit of a stick here in the background. So it'll be really worth your while, you know, taking that help, changing your behaviours and getting on with it. We also thought it'd be quite interesting to find out, do staff care 
about energy efficiency. Um, it's very interesting, some of the research projects we've done on waste, particularly food waste and plastic waste, they're very sort of emotive topics and, and people tend to get quite behind um, efforts to tackle those within uh, operations. But what was quite interesting is there was quite a mixed feeling about whether because it's so much more removed, the energy efficiency of a, you know, an oven or a fridge or an ice maker, did do staff care? Well, I think there was a there was a feeling that they, they did when they took the time to think about it, but they probably weren't thinking about it. But actually, that it was a sort of something that probably is going to come up on the agenda in the future. So it's actually something that's, again, worth addressing and tackling now, because in the future, people will care. Um, don't worry, I'm nearly finished. Um, the other thing just to note here is that there's also, you know, consumers also do care. There's this rise of the constant conscious consumer. They don't really see energy efficiency. Again, it's not something that people felt within the industry was a big issue now, but that it's something slightly lurking in the background. So better to sort of have tackled it from an, you know, if you're an operator, tackle it, make sure it's not a threat um, for something if it suddenly becomes a big um, media issue or consumer or citizen concern. Um, so the last point uh, is this, what government and industry need to do. So their action plan. Um, so the, the thing is, there was a feeling that government uh, had a role to play here, really needed to introduce more incentives. So there should be easier access to things like the energy technology list and clearer linking of how energy efficient equipment can help meet overarching emission reduction targets to help improve uptake. Um, and the food service really industry really needs to get behind this to lobby and support this agenda. Um, consultants and specifiers do appreciate the benefits, but the people who hold the purse strings are harder to persuade, as we've discussed. So, again, you know, having these tax breaks and having you know them linked to emission reduction targets can really help persuade people up the train. So, government, you know. Enhanced capital allowances, for example, which allow you to claim 100% of the year, first year's um, uh, capital allowance if it's on the energy technology list at the time. They were kind of given as examples of things that were quite useful, although still a little bit laborious because sometimes the effort and energy to get involved, you know, would overrun, would, um, would kind of negate the fact that people were getting involved. But, you know, there's a kind of a quite a lot that could be doing to help drive this agenda. So food service should help lobby in this in this area and also and be doing all these things behind the scenes as well. Um, the, the other interesting thing is, is a lot of the government schemes that are out there, the, the only, so for example, the MEEPS regarding uh, refrigeration, only the people that had recently purchased refrigerations, only the operators who had recently purchased refrigeration tended to know about them so you know there's not great um, awareness even within the buying community about some of these great innovations so again um, you know everyone should be kind of helping to publicize and helping to share that and it should be part of um, food services agenda to drive what exists already as well as looking for more don't worry this is the last one so um, as I've said we've now got this wonderful report and we know the barriers, but there's no longer any excuse for inaction. So it's all set out really nicely. Every little bullet point tells you what you need to do. So, you know, read it and share it and act on it and feedback because there has been this massive seismic shift in food service and in the wider business and global community. You know, there's, there's going to be more changes in policy coming. There's going to be more changes in business practices coming. So, you know, 
if we if we the, the solutions do exist we've worked out what the barriers are we've worked out some ways around them um but if we can just take the steps that we can all take within our different parts of food service we can actually really change this it doesn't have to be the status quo i want to be standing here in a few years time saying it's brilliant this has been sorted out now the next problem is i don't know what it will be but we can talk about something different let's not be talking about this again about price and functionality and you know whole life costings so i am finished there you are does anyone have any questions or anything oh. <laughs> thanks charles um, Amy, thank you for that. That was uh, really interesting. I, um, I'm Tom Mansell from LeanPath. <coughs> um, I was interested in um, whether you had got any um, perspectives from either operators or suppliers into um, some of the circular economy aspects of, um, of the machinery, such as design for disassembly, design for repair, design for reuse, and whether they'd considered any of the sort of circular economy um, financing models like leasing and paper use. Did, did, did any of those come across? Actually, you? interestingly, because we were focusing more on energy efficiency, we didn't focus on that too much. But uh, the the perception, is, the impression is very much of kind of, it's an unlocked door now. I think people are becoming much more creative in the way they view, you know, the, the catering business. And, and I think that I think that there would be um, people are looking for those innovative ideas and different ways to approach, you know, when you talk to people about the internet things and how do you think technology is going to change things, everyone was like, oh yeah, it's really exciting, it's really exciting, I'm looking forward to it, I just, you know, it's not quite happened yet or we've seen some innovations and maybe it's been a bit expensive. But I think that's, that, you know, those kinds of ideas are, you know, really crucial because that's one of the the big um, things that we kind of, we, we wanted to explore a bit more, but actually it was such a big different area, sort of the carbon impact. And, and when we ask operators, were they considering the sort of life uh, cycle impacts and the carbon impacts, people just weren't thinking about that. And when we talked to them about, you know, well, what about the fact that if you get a more reliable bit of kit, it lasts longer and therefore has a smaller carbon footprint, are you considering that? People weren't thinking about it. I mean, as a, pri as a, as a primary consideration, obviously when you said that they go yeah well of course we we think that's a good thing we want things to last longer but it hasn't become part of the buying mindset from from the um, indications that we receive but I think it's something that's that would definitely be um, people would be open I, I, I would assume from the conversations I had that people would be very open to looking at different ways especially if it meant that they could keep up with the different technologies because obviously when you're making an investment for a five to seven year product and things are moving quite fast it would be a way of insulating yourself against not losing out to any great innovations that were coming down sooner. So I think I think you could have a good bit of a yeah good good uh, yeah. I think you'd be positively received. I I also commiserated with your um, trying to get energy data from um, manufacturers. In a, in a previous life, I was at RAP, <laughs> and we were trying to get uh, energy efficiency data from manufacturers, yeah. and it was like pulling teeth, yeah. and amputating legs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anybody else? I told you everything. You don't need to know anything at all. Surely there we go, David, and Mike. Uh, D David Reed, um, just just a, a really simple question actually. When you buy a piece of domestic equipment for your kitchen, it's covered in information about 
its energy efficiency. Why doesn't that exist in food service? Well, this is this is the MEPS that has come in um, for the EU Eco Design Directive. So at the moment, it just covers cooling. Mm. So this is the thing that people didn't really know about, and. Um, Simon and Steve from Hoshisaki will be able to tell you much more about this than I can. But th- this, this, the thing is, is it came in and originally there was talk about it being expanded. So the A to E or whatever it goes down to gradings, which make it really easy to compare. So that's come in for cooling. It's been really warmly received, but it's not was talked about. But apparently it's not really kind of in the offing now for other types of catering equipment. So this is I I, th- I think it, I think I find it shocking as well. I think it really should be. So this is why I'm going. Manufacturers, do something about it. They're not going to make you do it. So you've got to do your own. But they're obviously not necessarily going to be quite as enthusiastic as me about so it. So it was legislation in domestic that made it happen. But yeah. There's no legislation. That's exactly in it. In this market. Yeah. Yeah. Good afternoon, everybody. Keith Warren, uh, Director of the Catering Equipment Suppliers Association. Um, on refrigeration generally, it fell under the eco-design and energy labelling requirements um, that were passed by Europe. Um, yes, the lead was certainly on domestic appliances. Then latterly, it came as part of the working plan for refrigeration for professional appliances. Um, so that's why we have the energy label uh, that we recognise from the domestic market. We will see probably over the course of the next two years similar labelling on what they're calling commercial refrigeration, which are reach-in units, uh, typically those units that would dispense a can of Coke or a sandwich or whatever. In in terms of Europe's drive in other areas, there aren't any other um, categories of food service equipment that are in the working plan. It's the working plan that uh, defines Europe's activities in, in this field. Interestingly, Europe's tended to move more towards reforming the energy supply networks to take the carbon out much higher up the supply chain on the basis that if the energy that we're plugging into with whatever appliance, whether it's in the commercial market or the domestic appliance, if there's a lower CO2 emission from that energy because of the way in which it was generated, that's achieving Europe and in fact the global carbon reduction program requirements, uh, which as Amy said were under the, the Paris Agreement that we won't, it won't increase global temperatures by more than one and a half degrees. So we're seeing a, a greening of the supply networks, a change through an increase in renewables, and actually the Commission got frustrated by the amount of time it took to produce the energy performance standard for refrigeration. Uh, this was going on for six years in total. And of course, if you look at, if we take a commercial kitchen, if we look at the variety of different products in that kitchen, the opportunity to write a test standard for each of those products becomes very complex. In the domestic market, it's relatively easy because all of our domestic appliances are 58.5 centimetres wide, 60 centimetres deep, 60 centimetres high. They're all very similar. But in commercial, a dishwasher is everything between a flight, a rack, a hood, an undercounter, a glass dishwasher, you've effectively got to write a different standard for each of those, and that's a, that's a frustration. So in recognising that across all industry sectors, they, they've looked to green the supply networks and increase the availability of, of more carbon-friendly energy, and that's typically where, where Europe's going. 
sorry, a fairly long-winded answer, but I hope that provides a bit of context as to why we're, we're not getting anywhere. There is a piece of work going on in dishwashers at the moment um, to look at uh, energy labelling on, on dishwashers, typically under-counter dishwashers, but similarly, that's taken a long period of time to go through, but there's some round-robin testing going on appliances at the moment. Uh, Steve Loughton from uh, Hojizaki. One of the things I'd add to that slightly is that Keith and I worked together for quite a few years in EFSEM, European Federation of Catering Equipment Manufacturers. And one of the things about the European Union is that they tend to not differentiate between commercial and domestic equipment. The domestic equipment has hundreds of thousands, millions of thousands of units, whereas commercial equipment is a, is a much, much lower volume base. And so they consider that to be actually quite difficult to start to legislate around. So uh, what they start to do is say, we'll use domestic um, rules and laws and just apply them to commercial. And of course, we know that that doesn't work at all. So there's an awful lot of time and money spent lobbying the EU to make sure that we can uh, keep that kind of differentiation right. And I think Keith's absolutely right that the shift of emphasis has moved from uh, supply chain to usage and back again and uh, supply networks and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty confused and confusing picture. And throughout the process, of course, the member states of the EU were growing as well. So we started off with however many we started off with, Keith, but we've now got eight, 28, I think. Shortly to be 27, I think, somewhere. <laughs> said, um, somewhere. <laughs> but of course, the legislation then encompasses all these other countries that are in a dramatically different state of maturity in terms of what they can accept, what they can't accept, and what they can and can't legislate for locally with their own manufacturers. So it's a very, very complicated uh, picture. Mike, did you have a question? Uh, Mike Hansen from Back to Story. Um, thank you very much, Amy. Um, just a question, really, regarding your um, asking a question during your research. Did you, at any point, um, discuss with anybody, or did anybody discuss with you, the tipping point at which point you swap out um, old equipment, old inefficient equipment, which may still be functional, for new efficient equipment? It's like the light bulb question. Yeah. When do you take your halogen bulb out that's still working and replace it with an LED? Most people um, seem to just say it happened within the normal um, replacement cycle. They weren't, it, it wasn't, it, there seemed to be kind of general a feeling that people would do it. They would replace them and they'd be looking, they'd be happy to replace for more energy efficient when that product was coming up normally. There wasn't, um, I don't know if I asked that specific question exactly, but we definitely did talk about when you know what when did you do it and it usually was in well within the plan maintenance plan replacement cycles so so i think that there weren't there wasn't a feeling that everybody was running around going okay i'm going to just replace this perfectly good piece of equipment but that when when they, because of course those replacement cycles could come around quite quickly with commercial equipment because it gets knackered so quickly i mean in terms of you know compared to perhaps domestic so within two five seven years people were changing them so so it was making sure you captured people and again I think for the smaller operators or the owner operators they were sometimes well there was sort of a some people said actually they could be easier to sell into them earlier because it was easier for them to see 
like that immediate benefit that they'd get in their running costs or even though they had to make the bigger investment now i'm aware that we're beginning to run over so shall we get the panel to come down um and then we can sort of carry on discussing all of this stuff um as we go along somewhere anyway i'll find them in a second so um the <laughs> the good thing is, is i think it would be really useful to start um with thank you charlie so th so i'll just introduce everyone so we've got mike hansen from baxter story who uh, has recently awarded i uh, was a lifetime achievement you got uh, Special Achievement Footprint Award for all of his amazing services to sustainability um, over the past years. And of course, we've got Steve Lawton from Hoshisaki. And then we have Keith Warren from, I'm going to get the acronym wrong. Catering Equipment Supplies Association. There we go. Caesar. Caesar. So there we go. So we've got really good, um, you know, we've got the operator side of things and we've got super in-depth equipment knowledge and um, obviously all the intricacies of all this legislation and stuff. So I think... Perhaps it'd be um, good to start with this question of um, how can we get, so there's, you've given us some great insight there about why we haven't got the you know, MEEPs and things extending to other catering equipment. So how can we get the, um, the manufacturers to somehow agree on other you know, life costing and energy efficiency comparable data that people can use if we're not going to get MEEPs, and maybe, as I said, maybe that's too complicated anyway to have those A grades, what can we do? Well, I think firstly we have to recognise the significant value um, that the investment the manufacturers have made in the refrigeration arena to get in the energy label. Um, as a result of that, it, it significantly advanced the uh, production of more energy efficient equipment, and that's been demonstrated by what we've seen in the marketplace. Um, and having an energy label on that equipment uh, not only gives the purchaser the recognition um, of, of what a, uh, the, the energy savings can be, um, but it gives an, an assurance uh, through an independent tested source of data, and that's, that's significant. We, and we must recognise that the strides have been made in that area. Um, I think certainly that there's further work to be done, and I think from some of the comments we've had earlier, we do see that whilst manufacturers are labelling their equipment, the supply chain is not necessarily carrying that label with it to the point of sale. Uh, and there is responsibility on a distributor of equipment for that label to follow the equipment wherever it appears. Uh, and we know there are cases where there are websites and brochures being produced without that label. That does a disservice to the manufacturer and also to the purchaser in making that objective decision. Um, the other important point to, m to make, I think, is in terms of the MEPS, the Minimum Energy Performance Standard, and this is European jargon now, what that did, did was setting that MEPS level, it took out the lowest performing 25% of equipment in a market. So that was another significant move in helping the improve the efficiency of uh, the refrigeration market. Okay, so into the other sectors. So if we look at the others, it's going to be cooking equipment and wear washing as, as the other intensive users. Um, we know there's complexity. Uh, those pieces of equipment are not in the working plan at the moment, although, as, as I mentioned, there is some work going on in terms of labelling for dishwashers. Um, 
I think that Europe sees that they've got bigger issues to sort out with the energy supply networks, as I said earlier, than through industry-specific areas. Now, what we must also recognise is that manufacturers have done a lot to improve the efficiency of their equipment in those two areas. We lobbied very hard with the um, Carbon Trust and with DEFRA uh, in the mid-2000s, about 2005, to get warewashing equipment on the energy technology list. They did an evaluation of dishwashing equipment and actually concluded that manufacturers had done so much to reduce the water and thereby the energy use of that equipment that there weren't any uh, gains to be had mm. from putting warewashing equipment on the energy technology list. Mm. So um, that, is, that is there. And an interesting point, anecdotally, on induction equipment, because we did exactly the same job, because it would seem like a no-brainer for induction cooking equipment to go onto the energy technology list. Well, the problem was there was so much embedded carbon in the energy supply networks that actually, even if you were putting on a piece of induction equipment up against a piece of gas-powered equipment, you couldn't demonstrate the carbon savings for the induction equipment. You'll reduce your energy costs, but this is the problem of so much embedded carbon in the energy supply networks. Mm. So this is the complexity. Europe is very sensitive to its uh, heavy reliance on imported energy, typical oil and gas. It wants to escape that. It sees the renewable energy strategy as being a principal element of, of what it's going to do. And we also see a change in energy supply. And I think it's just important to touch on this and I'll pass on. The, the issues that Europe is now facing is the digitization of energy supply networks, the decarbonization of energy supply, so taking carbon out of the supply chain, and also decentralization. So this is about local energy. It's about us storing energy in our homes in battery packs that are charging up, perhaps, or solar panels on the roof, or through ground source heat pumps are using that energy. So those three Ds are really what's driving the, the future of, of European policy. Mm -hmm. So it's lifted the game. But what it does mean is there are still significant savings to be made by operators who invest in more energy efficient equipment, regardless of whether there's le legislation. And we see a huge amount of work going in across the whole of Europe principally. And Europe's taking a lead on this because it's good for business, it's good for jobs, it's good for the climate. Huge amounts of investment in R&D to reduce energy um, costs because we know one of the principal pains that operators face are overheads. So the more that can be done by the equipment industry, um, the, the better it will be. And of course, a commercial kitchen is a system made up of individual appliances. And what needs to be taken into consideration is how you link that system of appliances together to make the most e efficient floor uh, footprint within the kitchen and therefore by reduce the energy use. And that's a complexity, but a systems-based approach is, is the approach that should be taken by operators. But, but I think that's a good point because it sort of also answers your question about do people replace items ahead because of that embodied carbon and the whole um, life cycle approach and, and again where perhaps sort of leasing of equipment could come into it so you make sure that that stuff goes back into the system and isn't, is, you don't lose all of that energy that's already been invested. Steve, did you want to add? Yeah, there's a couple of uh, quick things I'd add to that as well. Number one is that um, I think over the last few years, actually, the story has subtly changed. We were talking about carbon a few years ago. We weren't talking about energy per se. We were talking about these carbon clouds that were apparently floating around everywhere and how we could reduce them and so on. And I think a lot of people just began to get to grips with what that meant 
and beginning to understand it, and then the world moved on a little bit and we started talking about different things. I, I think that the whole sort of uh, electric transport uh, thing has, I won't say it's clouded the argument because they're two completely different things, but I think it's made people think of a, a different aspect of sustainability. I heard this morning in the car that uh, the government's about to invest £400 million in rolling out chargers for uh, electric vehicles or hybrid type vehicles across the country. Um, we're not here to talk about motor transport, but uh, electric cars are not particularly green. Uh, not by the time you build them and the rare materials that they, they use for the batteries and so on. So this is where I think the whole thing's slightly confusing. From an equipment manufacturer's perspective, what I would say, um, uh, particularly to what Keith said, I think a bit of an advert here now. We're fortunate working for Hojizaki, which is a Japanese company. Uh, Hojizaki in Japan mandated that energy efficiency was something that would be uh, top of the agenda around the entire world. Uh, and we are the world's largest uh, manufacturer of our type of equipment. So when Japan speaks, we, we tend to listen quite a lot and understand it. There are lots of manufacturers, though, that operate primarily in countries or uh, continents that are not Europe, where they don't have the same focus. They don't necessarily think that uh, saving uh, electricity or, or gas or water is as important as we do. And if their major markets are outside of the uh, UK and Europe, then, of course, there's going to be a different focus from those manufacturers and their distributors and on the design of the equipment and, and so on and so forth. Um, and in fact, in, in another slight life, one of the things that uh, we have been involved in with Caesar is uh, a, a global networking of like-minded people and uh, trade associations from North America through to uh, Europe as well as New Zealand and Australia and uh, India to, to try and see what the common things are that we can, uh, we can eke out and, and work, but not a five-minute job by any stretch of the, uh, of the imagination. Mike, maybe you could also give us a perspective from an operation, operator point of view about how, how would it help you? What can the manufacturers and, and vendors do to help you to prioritise the more sustainable equipment? Certainly from, um, from Baxter Story's point of view, we're a contract caterer, so we work um, largely in the workplace. So often the energy, the equipment is owned by the client. Uh, we can clearly have um, an, an influence and advise. Um, I think probably the biggest, one of the biggest barriers to buying energy efficient equipment um, is lack of planning um, and lack of a strategy um, from, a, from a client perspective. Um, I think what would what it would have been amazing to um, have in the audience here. Um, I'm sure there are some maybe some more people from who are clients mm. within the workplace because they're the people that buy the equipment. And what tends to happen, I think, is that um, through lack of planning, um, we'll have we'll operate a kitchen, and um, the fridge or the fryer or something will keep breaking down, and we keep getting it repaired, and it keeps breaking down, and we keep getting it repaired. Eventually, it will fail completely. Suddenly, the client realizes, actually, this is going to be a big issue for service tomorrow unless we can get this sorted out. 
So they get on the phone and they say, get me a fridge. I don't care what it is, as long as it can be here tomorrow. Mm. And I, that happens so frequently. That married up with the fact that it needs to fit into the footprint. And I'm not, I'm not talking environmental footprint. <laughs> The footprint of the kitchen. So as you absolutely said, you've got um, a suite of um, equipment with a, a small table in here and a small fryer in here and whatever. And it's got to fit into there. Um, but also what tends to happen is the budget holder, and you mentioned it earlier, Amy, the budget holder for CapEx is different to the budget holder for OpEx. Mm. So the person who is actually going to... Um, spend more money on the pe on the on the fridge now um is not going to see the benefit because they don't pay that the the their budget doesn't pay for the electricity that comes out the other end and so i think the opportunity for um for all of us for manufacturers for um sellers if you like is to actually work with um those clients and those buyers of restaurants and within our own, own food service business to actually understand the need for a plan mm -hmm. um, because I don't think there is at the moment and that's something and I've worked I've done quite a lot of work with with Kate at Kate Consultancy and uh, we, we implemented the Cater Ops program at a couple of sites and it really demonstrated the benefit of planning particularly in a large group because it gave you an opportunity to say that we're gonna have I don't know, a Williams fridge for example um, we we're gonna have a Williams fridge and we're going to, this is our spec, this is what we're going to have in all, in all our businesses. Gives you an opportunity to then go back to the manufacturer and say, right, in you know, June 2020, I'm going to need six fridges. What can you do for me? But also it gives you an opportunity to think about what you're doing and plan for energy efficiency, for lowest life cycle, for lowest carbon, whatever your particular driver is. Mm. So I think the opportunity is for um, manufacturers to work with those clients to actually say, look, guys, you need a bit of pre-planning here. Actually plan for the future. This is the benefit to you, and this is the opportunity to do that for low, uh, more efficient equipment. And how can they get that in? How can they get those meetings to build that relationship so that... By working with um, organisations like BIFM, mm -hmm. British Institute of Facilities Management, um, and through uh, operators. So quite often, so for example, um, with, with us, well, with any food service operator, I would imagine, we only get involved with um, equipment, particularly when um, when there's a refit um, or when a client has asked us for input. We'll advise and so on, and we have a plan around um, I'd, uh, recommendations for what to consider during a refurbishment. But the opportunities um, to work with, and, w and we clear what we tend to do is we wouldn't work with um, Hoshizaki. We work with. Um, Hallmark or some other type of some other organization and it's creating the link with all of those those stakeholders I mean I was interesting I was I was talking I was with Dean Pierce this morning and we were talking about waste and, and recycling it's about joining up you know users manufacturers waste contractors consumers getting everybody joined up understanding the, the understanding the direction of travel um, will lead to that efficiency and I think the same would happen um, we haven't, uh, as back to the story, we've never had the opportunity to speak with you guys because it's always through a third party. Well, actually, if we all had the opportunity to get around the table, then we could maybe make things happen. 
great. So start tonight. This is it. This is the beginning of the change. You're seeing it here. Um, oh, so the, may, may, I just, may I just say thank, thanks for that? I mean, one other thing as well is that if, uh, if an operator's running a kitchen and he's got seven fridges, for example, or freezers or whatever from manufacturer A, and one of them breaks down, they may be seven to ten years old, but his instinct or the facilities management uh, person's instinct is to try and source another one from the same manufacturer if he, if he can. And the reason for that, of course, is spares, it's service, it's all the rest of that. It might be me. Yeah, I think it might be. Oh, so happy it's not me. <laughs> you're allowed, you're allowed. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's your wife. <laughs> I'll be seeing her later, don't worry. Um, so, so the instinct is to buy another one of exactly the same type, just from that that spares and service and warranty and, and so on perspective. So I think we've got all of that in the process as well. Uh, I think one of the things, I think you make a great point about um, definitely not eliminating in any uh, way or form the, the hallmark kitchens. They're, they're, they're kit, what we call kitchen houses or design and kitchen houses, but making sure that we can have the right forum, something like a single industry conference type of thing where particularly companies uh, like yourselves as well as the kitchen houses and manufacturers and the trade associations can get together and share these thoughts <laughs> and, and drive for the future. Yeah. Bring all those stakeholders together. Have we got anyone in the audience with questions for our very, very um, informed panel? Sorry, I'm asking a second question. I don't know if that's allowed. Um, uh, when I look at um, equipment usage across um, the whole of industry, and I look at other like uh, like situations, you know, take fleet for example. Um, fleet fleet management has become quite sophisticated over the last um, over the last twenty years, where. Um, where, where you know the key is all is all about data and data from the individual asset being collected by that asset and passed into the centre and then managed. Um, I appreciate that a, a fridge is a significantly lower cost piece of kit than an articulated lorry, but I'm just wondered. I'm interested in as manufacturers in your um, in your perspective on how this may play out in the future. Because it does seem to me that the biggest challenge that is faced by caterers is having, you know, if you've got 100 sites, you've probably got 1,500 assets out there. And and not understanding how well those assets are operating, as Mike just, just described, is actually pretty key. And if, if people had the data, um, then they would be able to replace the fryer, for example, before it goes goes terminal. So I'd just be really interested in your feedback on that. Uh, yeah, great, great question. As an equipment manufacturer, <coughs> this, this ties in with something that Keith mentioned, I think, which is the Internet of Things, you know, this whole idea of the world being a, a, a connected place. Um, uh, not to dodge the question, but just apropos of the question, of course, within our industry, um, uh, within my lifetime in the industry, uh, establishments would open metaphorically at nine o'clock and they would shut unless you were doing dinner metaphorically at you know five o'clock or six o'clock 
Now we have a very wide range of, of, of establishments. If you take a lot of the kinds of places that, that Mike's organisation would run, B&I, of course at weekends they're empty, nobody's there. Uh, after the office shuts, there's nobody there. Um, whereas if we take a lot of QSR type chains, they now work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, which adds to your question, I think, really, rather than detracts from it. Um, the idea of having a connected kitchen is literally just around the corner. And uh, there was a question there from our friend about pay-as-you-go. Um, you know, there is one company, at least I know of, in the, in the warewashing uh, sector of the industry that is doing exactly that. Um, with refrigeration, that would be a bit more difficult, obviously, because it's probably one of the only pieces of equipment in the entire kitchen which is on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, I think also, and I might defer to Keith for a second, in a second to this one as well, but the protocols around the types of connection and then the way in which the information is passed of course, the speed and, and so on and so on makes quite a difference as well. But I do think that those are objections, if you like, rather than real stumbling blocks to, to, to making that happen. Um, and again, I think back to Mike's point about planning, you can have a kitchen and you can buy a new piece of equipment that's connected, but then nothing else will be connected. Um, one thing I've learned about IT, if I know anything about anything, one thing I know about IT is that, <coughs> excuse me, it will continue to grow like topsy in everybody's lives and in, in everything that we do. It's just a sponge for, uh, for cash. So it will continue to, to be something that requires investing in. But I don't know, Keith, you want to make a point about that connectivity? Yes, and uh, thank you, Steve. Um, there's a lot going on in this area. As Steve mentioned, within our European Federation, there is a connectivity group which is looking at the protocols of what gets reported in what time frames and more importantly who sees that data and, and that's also replicate, replicated at the global level so we've got some we've got joined up thinking going on within the manufacturing industry between the global players the European players and then locally in the UK CESA members uh, and we are the conduit for that communication across all three um, certainly the connected lives that we're all going to carry on leading um, it is coming and that will lead across to the kitchen. I think there's an issue here in operators fully grasping the opportunities that that data will deliver to them and I think that's going to be principally through the operational savings um, and it's not just about individual appliances reporting whether they're in or out of temperature, critically important as that is. Um, but once they start to see that by having a connected kitchen it improves the efficiency of the operation, it changes labour flows, Yes, it manages the equipment in terms of what it's doing, how it's performing, it, when it starts to manage the service arrangements. And it's the protocols around this, and certainly also for facilities manager, just understanding what the service schedules need to be based around usage. Um, and I'm proud to say that, that CESA is leading the work in all of these areas. And it, it is the case that it's going to evolve and change. It will come through at the respective levels that it needs to at the particular times. Keith, can I hold you there just so we can get one more question in? Has anybody got another question? I think just could we end with um, Mike, with you sort of talking about from your perspective, you know, how what, what you want would like to happen next. You know, we talked about what 
everybody should do everyone's action plan so what do you think would be the most useful thing um to change that's you know to break down these barriers of price functionality and um, um i think as I, as I said earlier about breaking down the barriers bringing all the stakeholders together um i think information because um there is some incredible equipment out there and I, I use the term client because that's in my world, they're, they're clients, they're the people who, who own our contracts and who would buy the equipment on the whole, um, have no idea. And so actually connecting all the dots, if you like, will mm -hmm. enable that to happen. Um, so I think that would be a, a, a massive benefit for everybody. Um, so and more I, shouting about innovation, which is one of the points, and yeah, breaking down those silos. And, and, and my, la my one, one point I just wanted to make is that actually you can have and Amy, um, you mentioned it earlier, uh, around behavior. Um, you can have all the best, best equipment in the world, you can change all the equipment, but that doesn't mean it's gonna be used efficiently. Um, it can still be efficient. But if you ha even if you have old equipment, you can still use it efficiently. Um, if you have the best fridge in the world, um, the, most, uh, the best energy rating, whatever it may be, but if the fridge door is left open, it's not efficient. So I think training and if it is absolutely key for existing teams in all of our businesses. Perfect. And Steve, do you want to just say the same and then Keith just quickly summarise what you think the key short, succinct bullet point yeah, I, actions? I, I think as an equipment manufacturer, we're on, we're on the verge of just a huge amount of, of change, literally. We, we are watching kitchens get smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, we're seeing equipment become more compact and operators probably rightly expecting it to produce the same volume of product or keep the same volume of product cool within a smaller footprint but use less energy. Um, they have to be prepared to understand that someone has got to pay for the R&D that it takes not only to engineer and manufacture that but to conform to all of the um, the requirements that there are in global markets. But as an equipment manufacturer, I also recognise completely, actually, that's not their problem. I mean, as, as you said, Mike, if you've got a client, his job is not running a kitchen, that's your job. His job is being a bank or doing what he does. And, uh, you know, so I think that's, that's about where we're at right now. And I encourage the opportunity for us to break down our actually our own silos mm. and and have something like a single industry conference that would that would help us to network and communicate better together perfect and keith short thank sharp you. summary all right thank you i get the hint um <laughs> I, 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 the the move from a supply chain to a value chain is a critical factor in terms of exchanging accurate relevant data so that informed decisions can be made um i think generally it's acknowledged that it's not only cleaner, but it's also cheaper to save a kilowatt hour than it is to generate a kilowatt hour. And that's a fundamental that's got to go across, across everybody. Um, and I think it, it is exactly as Steve said, it, it's that increased communication. It's more that we do to gel the industry together uh, and work towards that common objective. And it falls under the circular economy package principles that we talked about earlier. It's wide ranging. We know if you put food in a product that's designed to do the job well, it will save also on food waste. And that goes for refrigeration as much as anything else. That, and that has a value to play in, in all of this. So it's a more rounded picture that we need to, we need to share that debate and that discussion on. Um, and let's recognize also in the stainless steel that goes into commercial kitchen equipment, 
70% of what's in that new stainless steel that gets used in the manufacturer is recycled from old appliances. So already we're a very sustainable industry in many respects and that will only carry on. So Perfect. Thank you. thank you all so much. Well, I think, I hope you have... I think the panel have been fantastic and they even started before they arrived, which is really, really wonderful because they've just got, you know, so much knowledge. This and the, the really lovely thing is, is that it seems that, you know, as I mentioned before, we're, it's pushing on an open door. You know, you want to collaborate, you want to get those connections. Everyone wants to network. So it seems like there are these barriers of price and whole life costings. There are some real serious challenges, you know, to get comparable data. It's not simple. It's not easy. But it looks like with uh, by putting heads together, by looking at different ways, innovation, you know, is it leasing, is it Internet of Things, turning things upside down, looking at all the different um, barriers, but also taking them on as challenges. Um, there's a real, real energy and momentum towards um, making the whole of the kitchen environment more sustainable, because as you say, there's all these great knock-on effects by tackling energy efficiency that you get the you know the, the better well-being and, and health for the people working there and the embodied um, carbon that's within the equipment and and the all of these other sort of impacts so and strengthening client relationships as well you know that's something which again is a really brilliant value add so there's a lot of a lot of hope a lot of uh, excitement I hope about about what we found in the report and demonstrated by all the um, extra knowledge that's been added this afternoon. So thank you all very much for listening to me and to our amazing speakers. Can I make a request? What's that? That's a request of Nick and Charlie to facilitate um, a working group roundtable <laughs> between um, manufacturers, caterers, um, possibly um, the kitchen designers, the hallmarks of this world, and maybe potentially some um, clients, BIFM maybe, to actually get around the table and talk about how we then move this forward. Yeah. Done. Done. There you go. Thank see, you very much. See, come to Footprint Forum. It's where change happens. So I'm going to hand over to Simon Frost now. But thank you again. Let's give our, our panel a right. Thanks, Amy. Wow. Well, firstly, I'd like to, uh, to thank the panel, uh, to thank uh, Amy, fantastic report. Uh, and to thank uh, everybody at uh, Footprint Media for producing uh, and running today. It's been fantastic. Thank you very much. So I hope you all, all agree that the Equip for the Future report has delivered some key findings uh, and come to conclusions that I'm sure we can all work with collectively to make uh, food service a more sustainable and environmentally friendly sector. Although the challenges to drive the uptake of energy efficient equipment may not be new, what seems to be different about tackling these issues today is the change in perception and momentum. In this age, there is no longer an excuse for inaction, which I think was uh, shown on one of Amy's slides. Uh, the food service industry must work together to embrace the framework's action plan points to ensure an energy efficient catering equipment becomes today and tomorrow's norm. At Hojizaki, we have begun to look at achieving an, a more su sustainable business, working with our partners up and down the supply chain to deliver these efficiencies. And taking the results from the equipped to future uh, equipment, uh, I'll get my words out in a minute, equipped for the future, we aim to make a clear payback and return on investment uh, for our customers to understand 
the process in the first two thirds of the product life statement as shown in the report uh, to help them make better and more informed decisions. We will continue to work closely with our chains and national accounts as well as all of our customers uh, but most importantly we will ensure that our port equipment portfolio is as green as possible and in doing so we have already started to phase out unsustainable appliances uh, and matching price technologies with our older counterparts uh, to help uh, our customers make the right decisions and what I mean by that is we've already started to uh, uh, stock only hydrocarbon products in our warehouses uh, and reduce the number of HFC appliances we have uh, and that's reflected in the price as well. Finally I would just like to thank all of you for attending today and for coming. Um, we do have some drinks and some nibbles next door so I'm hoping you'll stay and, and, and maybe share those with us uh, and before you go please pick up uh, a copy of the report. There is a, a report for, for everybody. If you do need more reports please uh, please shout uh, and if you need we can always post them out to you as well but uh, it just remains for me to say thank you very much for coming and, uh, and thank you.